Hello and a big welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is a space for us to gently work through our messy stuff together in real time. Today I'm meeting the lead vocalist and bassist of one of my favourite bands. It's Mike Kerr from Royal Blood. The songwriting thing was terrifying. Like, hang on a minute, I've only done this this certain way. What if it doesn't work? And that was such a massive fear. I felt like I was having to relearn how to do everything. There was a long period of time where I was like, I don't know who I am. <laughs> Genuine identity loss, because it's like starting from scratch. You have to build yourself up. I didn't know how to just hang out with people or have a conversation without any drinks. Oh, I cannot wait for you to hear this chat, because Mike is just so open and thoughtful about how he's learning to be in a rock band and be sober at the same time. Touring as a musician isn't a lifestyle that naturally lends itself to sobriety, but he's found some brilliant new ways of releasing all that energy and adrenaline. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Should we do it? Right, here's the show. Good. I'm good. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. I um I was listening to your well, I've listened to your album a lot over the last week, but uh on my morning run today, the single typhoons got me up a particularly horrific hill. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. We uh yeah, we seem to be um popular with with gin music for a long time now, I think. Yeah, it's it's something about your music that just sort of like it gets the adrenaline going. I feel very powerful listening to your music. That's my thing. I feel like I am sort of Mo Farah on my park run when I'm listening to your music. See, I, when, I, when I run, it's complete silence. No way. Yeah, it's, more, it's pretty morbid. And, and why, what's that about? Do you, you just need to sort of concentrate on what your body's doing? I don't know. I think, I think a part of it is particularly like when I'm making an album, I don't want to listen to anything. Right. My ears are so tight. I think it's a mixture of that. I don't know. I like, I like listening to my thoughts on, on the run. Oh, I don't. <laughs> It, it it is quite dark sometimes, isn't it? Like I realised the other day, I was I was running, and I caught myself having an argument with someone who didn't even exist yeah. about a, a subject I'd never. And I was like, "Yeah, well, you would say that." And I was, <laughs> and I was like, "Who am? What am I doing?" <laughs> well, no, what you're doing is you're essentially meditating, aren't you? Because yeah, I was having a chat with someone the other day, and I think I actually grasped what meditating was from having this conversation. That it's not just getting all the thoughts out your head; it's actually giving yourself the time and space to have a conversation with your ego. So it's where your spiritual side meets your ego. So you're doing that during your runs. That is a good thing to do. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I, I do get that feeling from it as well, actually. It's, um, yeah, conversations with yourself, yeah. 
Maybe I need to do it because I think I'm looking for sort of the ultimate distraction from my thoughts, but also from the fact that I'm running. Like, I don't want to think about the fact that I'm running. I just want it to be like, this is great music. This is a good podcast. Oh, I'm home. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got so into running recently, right? I saw you did 48 miles in 48 hours Yeah. for charity. How was that? It was hard. Yeah, you have to run four miles every four hours on the dot and you do it for 48 hours wow it's more it's more the psychological element of it it's designed by this guy david goggins who i'm sure you've heard of i I haven't which is awful but please tell me he's this um ex-navy seal guy this american guy who's like mr hard man he's just like he's he's like run for like 200 miles and he does he just does like crazy shit and he he kind of designed this challenge and it's designed by a psychopath. It, it's like he's, <laughs> he's, he's worked out the exact amount of time. Because like for the four, hour, like four hours between, it's just perfect to ruin it. Right. Because you're so buzzed after the run and you have this adrenaline. And then, and then you could, if it was every two hours, you could almost go out. But then you start to fade away. And then you try and sleep. And, you, and at that point, it's like 40 minutes sleep. Oh. And then you're back out again. And it's the stopping and starting. Everyone does it around the world at the same time. But if you're in the UK, it started at 4am. So me and a couple of mates did it and we were down the pier at 4am. And it's when we got the second day around. Well, it was like, we have to do that all again. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm, I'm questioning why it you did hard. this. Well, obviously for charity, which is wonderful. And what, where are you sleeping when you have those breaks? Just coming home. Oh, you go back home and then you're back out again. Yeah, I would like shower every single time and then like put my running stuff by the bed and then... But the, the sleeps would get, like, deeper and deeper as it went on. So it would be like waking up from a coma. You'd just be like that. <laughs> just that, like, white panic of, like... <gasps> like oh, what's... my God. And then, so what was going on in your head during... Because that's a long time to have a conversation with yourself. What was coming up for you then? I was with other people. So we were able to kind of keep each other sane. Distractions helpful with those kind of things. Yeah. I'm no athlete, but that's one thing I've noticed. When, when things are ri- when you feel the kind of energy of everyone is gone, someone needs to crack a joke, yeah. or someone needs to do something. I remember on the second to last run, this guy we were with, he he was you could tell he had just checked out. He he'd like he was getting ready to give up, and he was just you know just, he'd just gone really quiet for ages, and then yeah. he, he stopped for a sec, started walking. We were like, no, come on, we got him going again. And I just started reeling off facts about the Titanic because <laughs> I went down this like Titanic hole where I got really obsessed with the Titanic and I started reeling off these like mad facts about it. And we got to the end of the run and he was like, you have no idea what those Titanic wow. facts did. He was like, tactic. I just need, he just, I just needed to, I just needed to take my mind away for, for a second so I could my body so my body could kind of get through it one of my friends has a similar technique for when she can't sleep and she runs through she starts at our queen now queen elizabeth ii and she just keeps going back in the line of monarchy and just just to see how far she can go and then usually she's asleep by henry the eighth or whatever great (laughs) such a good one um so you've had you've had such a game-changing few years am i right mike are you 30 at the moment I am. You're 30, right. So you're, what I was sort of thinking when I was writing up this episode was, this is probably all part of your Saturn Returns. Do you know, have you heard of Saturn Returns? No, not really. Okay, so your Saturn Returns is between the ages of about sort of 27 and 31. And essentially it's, you know, how many years it takes for Saturn to get back to the point it was at 
when you were born. And supposedly during that period of 27 to 30, 31, transformational stuff's happening. My God, in my own life, it was absolutely the case in, you know, horrendous ways at times. And I think like I'm, I'm sort of just healing from all of that now. But it, but it's often where game-changing, life-changing stuff happens. And it seems from the outside like that's what you've been experiencing. I mean, so much change in your life. First of all, your music has, has you know, you, you wanted to approach that differently and, and get a different sound and, and work in a new way, right? Yeah, I think the music we've made is a total reflection of where I'm at. And yeah, you can hear you can hear the energy on the second record compared to this one. And I think the reason they are, they're not unrecognisable, but you can tell that something's changed. It's not just a, well, it, it wasn't a, a sort of premeditated or artistic decision to do something different. It's more of a yeah reflection of how I've changed um, as, as, as a person. But it's funny you say it about it being like a return journey because the album that we've made, to my friends who know me, and I've known me for years, they think it sounds like the band I was first in when I was like 15 and 16. Yeah. And they're saying this is the most like Mike Kerr, Ben Thatcher thing I've ever heard. Because wow. when Royal Blood came out, they were kind of like, not confused, but they were like, Mike doesn't really play bass. We've never really heard them do like rock music like this. So there's like a sonic return on this album. But I've got a theory, which I think a few people would share, which is that when you start drinking or, and, or taking drugs, when the moment that begins, no matter how innocent it is, I always have this theory that you begin to abandon that person slowly. I think as my drinking went on and on and on and went and got harder and harder and harder to sobriety, yeah, I almost feel like I returned back to that person and sort of picked up where I left off. Mm. And it's really weird. Like I've even, there's even like hobbies and things that I did when I was really young. Like I used to like be obsessed. I was like a proper nerd, like obsessed with like card tricks and things like that. And I'm like, I'm like why did I stop doing that? And I, I used to kite surf as well. And I, so recently I was like, back, I'm getting back into kite surfing. And just sort of, yeah, picking up all these parts of, of, of me that I just abandoned and left. So, yeah, the return journey thing makes complete sense. And I, I, I yeah, I feel like I've done that. And, yeah, the album is, it sounds like the first band I was in. But that's so cool. And you've done it, you know, without, I don't, not being patronising in the slightest, but you've done it at a young age, like 30, to, to have sorted that out and to come back to yourself is amazing. I'm 40 this year and I feel like I'm just doing it now. I think I got stuck in that bit. And I think that can often happen, like you get stuck in the bit where you've abandoned bits of yourself or you're just not quite able to like push through it. And I feel exactly the same as where you're at, but now later down the line that I'm definitely again, like taking interest again in all the things that I loved as a kid, like really simple stuff, just like, you know, it's so obvious and almost sounds cliched, but just being outside, you know, looking at the stars or, you know, just looking at the sky or going for a walk in the park and all the stuff that you, you know, inherently as a kid draw from. I, I feel like I'm I'm doing that again and it, it's really lovely and I feel very um I feel very grateful that I'm I'm getting back to that place at the moment. It's it's a really good feeling and I, and I know how hard it is when you do get stuck. So so how lo- how long was your drinking a problem? That sort of that moment of being stuck in the abandonment. I so understand that. It's sort of something that crept up on me and it's it's hard for me to define the particular moment. 
I feel like the frog in the water that slowly, the temperature slowly mm. in hotter. It can't, I couldn't sort of detect, yeah, when, when things are problematic. I mean, it's the temperature was getting raised on it around the second album. I'd been on tour for like three years and every day was as fun as it was. It was like a stag do, like every day. Mm. And I started taking check of myself thinking, have I really been drunk every day for two years? I was like, wow, that's, that's mental. And not just like, oh, a few too many, like obliterated. Yeah. And playing shows and traveling and interview and on this journey and, and experiencing something cosmic and it just being this, um, yeah, every day we were doing something mind blowing. We were meeting someone we'd never dream we'd get to meet or play with bands that, it was so beyond anything we expected. So just an incredibly intense experience. And it got to the second record and it was like that had become normal. That was like the baseline. And yeah, we were known for that. And it's funny, I, the way I normalised it, and I think human beings are amazing at just normalising craziness. We, we evolve so quickly to whatever's going going on around us. And... Yeah, I just I just normalized it. But yeah, the way I kind of normalized it was that I I thought I could I was functioning, but and the way I determined that was whether I could do a show or not. Right. And and that was it, which is mental. It's mental. Like our studio up the road, there's a pizza restaurant next to it, and I always go and have a coffee with the chefs in there. And I was talking to one of the pizza chefs, and we were talking about this exact same thing. She's got the dough machine going right, the dough whizzing around. And we were talking about this idea of functioning. And I was like, if that machine was like sparking at the plugs, smoke was billowing out of it, it was like rattling over the floor and it just about made one batch of dough. I was like, we wouldn't say it was functioning. <laughs> it's, <laughs> nice. it's, nice. it's like falling apart. Uh, and I, that's kind of how I, I was like that dough machine, you know, I was just like falling apart. But as long as I could get away with it, it was everything was fine. Mm, and also you lose the sense of, you know, functioning might be fine, but what about thriving? You know, what about thriving? Where's that yeah. option? Is that option available? And, and that seems to be, well, most definitely with this record, that's the only way that I can sort of pick up on that and from the bits that I've read about you. But it seems like a time now of of thriving. And, and I guess to do so, you have to have acceptance of yourself. You have to feel pretty happy in your own skin obviously previously before I'm imagining that some of that drinking into oblivion was as you said trying to abandon parts of yourself and and a lack of that self-acceptance do you have you sort of worked out why you were trying to run from yourself it's something I'm unraveling at the minute um, and it's really interesting there's I guess there's two there's loads of theories on it what one is that you know, I, I was always kind of destined to fall into trouble with drugs and alcohol and it's something that I was born with. But I, I, heard, I heard something recently which is like, you have to look at what alcohol and drugs sort of did for you. Like, what, what was the positives? And what did, what, did they, what did they bring to the table? And for me, I'm trying to identify like what particular traumas have happened in my life that I've was sort of medicating for. 
So it's a, it's a long, it's, it doesn't seem to have one answer for me at the minute. All I know is that my job and my experience of being in the band just allowed me to to live like that without really being questioned. I think if I had nearly any other job, someone would have been like, what are you doing? Yeah, you need help. Well, well, this is it. You know, I read in another article that you, you'd done an interview in saying that that sort of outrageous in plain sight behavior is almost a cry for help in itself did did yeah. were you sort of aware of that while you're doing it like that you were going hey guys it looks like i'm having fun but also help please help totally yeah and i think um i, I yeah I, I in all honesty i was i was almost waiting for someone to be like what are you doing and did they not for a long long time and i was a yeah, I was amazed how long, I, how far I could go and how publicly and how open I could be about what I was doing without someone going, that's a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> Can we have, we should have a word. Like, no, it's, there's, um, yeah, you have to go far. And it's funny, I, I noticed it with a friend of mine a couple of years ago and I was like, he's doing what I was doing. Mm. He's sort of acting out and he's not all right. And I I, I spoke to him, and yeah, and, and turns out he was in a, a state and he's now sober and has been sober for a year but what what what's scary is you don't know what someone's going through everyone's so good at hiding it and all I had to do was just pull on this thread and this whole thing just unraveled and it was his whole thing was just like help you know and the same thing happened to me someone just someone intervened and said I'm really worried about you a lot of other people are worried about you is everything okay and suddenly it all just came out. I was like, no, actually, I'm not. And this needs to stop. Yeah, it's scary. But you know what? When I, when I spoke to my friend to see if he was all right, maybe it's like an English thing as well. I was so... My biggest anxiety was that I'd got it completely wrong and I was going to embarrass myself. Yeah. <laughs> my biggest thing was that I was going to be like... And him be like, Mike, I think you've got this totally wrong. I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a... You know, that was my fear. I was more scared of embarrassing myself. It's often why we don't reach out, isn't it, in any circumstance, if someone's just yeah. a bit feeling a bit low or whatever, that we don't want to get it wrong. But I think it's so worth taking the risk to reach out to someone. And it, and it puts you in a vulnerable position reaching out. And that's why we often don't. But it is so... It's so worth it. And I... I don't know if I want to generalise or not here, but I do think it's probably harder for men to go, I need help. So actually the intervention is really key. I think I think it generally is harder for men. Maybe it's because it's more attractive to men to do it on their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got to tough it out. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it sounds like something people say to make men reach out, but it really is true that it really does require strength to ask for help. Hugely. And when I when I used to hear that, I used to be like, "You're just saying that to make guys feel better," but it really is true. Like that's why no one does it. Exactly. <laughs> it, it exactly. Takes, and it goes for everyone. It, you know, it's a it's not a fun thing to admit that you need help or to, and it's also choosing the right person to talk to because you you need it to be the right person that is going to genuinely. Yeah want to help rather than you know you could easily have people around you going nah come on you're fine because they want to join in the fun the debauchery the decadence of it all so i think it's, mm-hmm. it's key that, that you find the right people 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And so, so what, you've been sober now two years, is it? Two years, yeah. And so how was that creative and, and recording process, I'm imagining for the first time with total clarity? You know, how did that change for better or worse when you were recording this last album? It took a while to to get my mojo back and to get my yeah to prove to myself that I could do it because lots of people were telling me that what you know or at least scaring me like what if you need it you know well, that's and, and, nice of them <laughs> I know yeah and there's also it's all it was also a fear in the back of my head mm. like what if hang on a minute I've only done this this certain way this is the recipe. What if it doesn't work? And that was such a massive fit. And it, yeah, it wasn't like I got sober and then the next day I wrote Wonderwall. It was like, <laughs> it was, I felt like I was having to relearn how to do everything. Mm. There was a long period of time where I was like, I don't know who I am. Mm. <laughs> I was like, don't, genuine identity loss because, yeah, it's like starting from scratch. So you have to build yourself up. I didn't know how to just hang out with people or have a conversation without any drinks, you know. The songwriting thing was terrifying. And I was just writing some songs. I was like, this sounds like a sober song. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like someone sober. It was like really square and like ordinary. Had no like edges to it. It was like a fucking pebble. <laughs> <laughs> a big old sober pebble. Yeah. Um, but it took about, I reckon it took about eight months. And then suddenly... I wrote Limbo and it was just mental. I was like, where on earth did this come from? And it didn't sound, it, it, it was so far away from anything I'd done before. And it was so, it broken every rule in our band and was just so adventurous. And then I sent it to my manager and he was like, that's really, really good. You just, you just write that. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like last week. He's like, great, do another one. <laughs> then I wrote Typhoons. And I was just like... Oh my like, God, that's my favourite song on the album. I love it. And it was like seeing in colour for the first time. I just had mm. this clarity. And I had so much to say as well. In all honesty as well, I, I didn't know what to sing about, didn't know what to write about. And then I, I realised that I had a lot to talk about from where I'd just been. But because I was in this kind of really amazing headspace for the first time where I felt awake and it felt like I was firing on all cylinders... The music was so like upbeat and euphoric and feel good. And then underneath it all was just this really dark <laughs> lyrical content about, you know, the the sludge that I'd just come out of. And, and what about, you know, the rest of it? Because of course there's, there's that element, there's the creativity, there's the recording, there's the writing and mining that well of stuff you've got within you. But there's obviously to come touring I know you you've done a bit of a tour sober right and you played Reading and Leeds yeah. sober I mean how was that you know that's that's again a very exposing environment I remember my husband going through the same he's been sober uh, coming up for eight years and wow. the first time he had to do a gig he was 
absolutely shitting himself because you're, you know, he's quite a shy person anyway. And it's an exposing environment. And there you are in front of thousands of people. And you've got to do what you normally do without that, that chaos and that decadence. What did that feel like? It was scary. And again, lots of people were going to me, how are you going to do this? Yeah. How, how, it was almost them projecting their fears on me. It was like, and looking back, I was like, that's such a mental thing to say to me. And I'd just been reading Ross Edgley's book. You know, that guy that swam around the UK. Mm. I was like, people have done much more, like, extraordinary things with their life. I was like, I'm just going to go and play, like, 20 shows without drinking or taking drugs. It's not. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was, I didn't tell, and no one knew I was sober at this point. And we only had a couple of songs written and recorded. And the whole idea of going out was I needed to remind myself of what I do and who I am. Because I was writing songs and I was like, I don't, I don't know what we do. I was, it's just, I feel, I feel so detached now. I'm sober. So the Reading and Leeds opportunity came up and it was like perfect. I was like, because if I can do that, then I can prove to myself that it's, this is a good plan. And it was funny. I, yeah, the first show, it was, I mean, it really is terrifying. It's, but what I noticed was any technical issues or anything that was slightly off with the crowd or if there was moments where I thought, instead of just turning around and like necking like loads of tequila out the bottle, I could, I was like, oh, that's not there anymore. It was like my toy had been taken away from me and I mm. had to navigate through the problem or around it. And then into the next song, I was like, oh my goodness, that was so easy. <laughs> and I was like, what? And then I was just like, what was I doing? I was just, it was just, that was my, that was my solution. And have you, have you put any sort of coping mechanisms in place going forward? Because, you know, it's not just the getting on the stage. There's the whole caboodle that comes along with, with being in a band and touring and obviously great fun and, and a privilege a lot of the time. But, but also, you know, hectic. It's not regular. It's not normal. It's, they, you know, you pack in a lot in a day. You could be in different countries in the same day and meeting multiple strangers in the same day and, and always sort of aiming for this imagining your sort of marker of of what is perfect or what is right for you as a band it's it's an intense environment to be in so instead of there being that crutch of having alcohol around have have you thought about what might take its place yeah yeah I think about I think on that last tour there was things that I set up I bought a a flight case just full of gym equipment and I would train sort of do 40 a 40 minute like hit session every show day and it would roll into the venue while all the crew was setting up all the lights and i'll just be like the psychopath in the corner just doing press and burpees um and so i did that and then i one thing i noticed is that there's such an adrenaline rush coming off stage and it's i always found it very difficult to come back down again. You're re-entering the atmosphere. Yeah, horrible, a horrible, horrible experience. It really, it's it's like a, it's like a, it's its own sort of come down. It's and it always made me feel something. I don't know. I can't describe it. Something about it was trig is was triggering for me. Well, again, it's Coming not natural. Coming down is it? from a high. It's not a natural transition to make 
in everyday life that, that you know, in a matter of seconds, you're going from thousands of people screaming at you and you're feeding off of it to then literally nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Silence. Silence. So what I realise is that I always wanted that. You, you want to sustain that level of thing for at least for a bit and, and, and release it on your terms rather than get off. <laughs> yeah. So I, what I did is I would set up a boxing bag in my dressing room. And sometimes if I was, if I was in England, if we were in England, I'd have a tra- my trainer come along and I'd just literally go straight into like a box, like a hour boxing session because there's all this testosterone and masculine energy coming off stage. And I was like, I need to do something with it. And I can't just attack tequila. Yeah, or <laughs> I need, Ben. I need to like fight. Yeah. <laughs> and not hurt anyone. Um, I'm still, I'm still working it out, but I think... In, in terms of the future in touring, I just have to protect myself from people, places and things. And I can't, I, I can't go out after the show to a bar. Like I, I thought, I, I really thought about this. When I first got sober, I used to, I used to go and do that. I used to be like, well, I'm, just because I'm sober doesn't mean I'm going to be boring. I'm still going to come out, guys. Don't worry. And I'd order a tonic and I'd just hang out with people getting drunk. And I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. Like this... The whole point of being in a bar is to get drunk. Yeah. At least, from my, my my opinion, it doesn't make. If you sort of don't drink, it does. Being sitting in a bar doesn't make much sense. No, it's just a room to take drugs in. But also, you're not you're <laughs> not in that group really because you're on a yeah. totally different level of energy and thought, and you you're outside of it. Yeah. So, I have to change everything in order to hold on to sobriety. That's basically it. And it's funny, on that last little tour, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm like up in the morning. And then I'd be like, I've got like four hours to do something. And I'd be like, well, I'm in, in Moscow, so I guess I'm just going to go outside and check it out. Yeah, why not? And, it was, and then I just had this like thought of like, I felt very guilty to honest with you, because I was like, I've been to all these amazing places, but I haven't been to any of these places. I hadn't seen any of it. Mm. And I, I f- and being the person in my family is probably going there for like the first time. I was like, surely I have some kind of a responsibility to report back when someone goes, "What's the Ukraine like?" And I'm like, uh. "Yeah, I was hungover. <laughs> I have no clue." Where? No, and that's a lovely thing to, to explore that that time and that freedom. It's amazing. Yeah, and um, running, like getting up from the hotel and running, and just running around Moscow or running around this place. That you, these new places, I was just like, this is amazing. This is like the best job in the world. Like, yeah. So it's, I think the way I live on tour will just have to change. The idea I can keep, keep the same lifestyle, but just remove alcohol is, I think that's a bit of a fairy tale. And it's also really dangerous. Well, it's also a lot of pressure on you that you probably don't want to be having to deal with. You know, they're, they're changes that I guess from the outside again seem to you to be very intuitive and something that feels right and that's all we can do is go with that right yeah yeah totally another of my favorite songs on the album is Boilermaker my eight-year-old is obsessed with it and plays it relentlessly on our little home device that you activate by shouting out Boilermaker really loudly what an amazing song and and this is the song that was produced by another of my favorite musicians ever Josh Homm who, again, from the outside, from what I've seen on Instagram, seems to look like he's going through some sort of spiritual awakening or big life turnaround in some way. So 
How, how did that help? What was that dynamic like between you? Yeah, I feel like when we recorded that song, I was at my worst. And I think you can kind of hear it in the song. I, I was just like falling apart. And that song as well is about being in the bar till 5am drinking Boilermakers, you know, which is, it's just the idea of just, yeah, whiskey and beer, literally anything, I don't care, just, just like, get me out of here. <laughs> and, and the kind of, just about all the gross things you might say and the people you're hanging out with. And it's just that, like, the whole song is just kind of gross. <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of the setting. It's supposed to make you be like, ugh. And I was kind, of, I was kind of in that. I was, I felt like I was reporting from the front line in that song. And in that studio session, you know, Josh is a hero of mine and such a huge influence on what I do. And the first time I heard Queen of the Stone Age, I I stopped the car. I remember someone lent me "Songs to the Death," and you know, I I was brought up a Christian, so everything just sounded like you too. But not even, not even, but not even a good, but like a terrible version of you too. It was all very bland and, and plain, and everything was. And then I listened to songs of the deaf, and it was like. I, I literally just pulled the car. It was like it blew my mind, you know, and and it was like I want to be in that club. So to be working with Josh was just like such a full circle moment, and you know I, I want to. I want to impress him. I want to make him proud of what I'm coming up with. But what I realise is that I'm falling apart and suddenly I'm in this amazing moment, but I don't have my shit together. And luckily we had that song Boilermaker and, and Josh was brilliant about handling that song and he really helped us see it through. But I came out of that session like, I need, I need this, something has to change. So you were I still should... drinking at this point or you were newly yeah. sober? I was still drinking. I got so we 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 were working together for about two weeks, and in between the session, I went to Vegas to go on a date. Wow! And everyone was like, "What are you doing? Like, just chill." We've been going to cry, and I was like, "Everyone was like, please don't go to Vegas." And I was like, "Bye." <laughs> I went off to Vegas, and I went. I I met this girl, and we having drinks, and I was just like Ron Burgundy at the bar, <laughs> just like. <laughs> talking just fucking shit and this had this monologue going that just would always start to happen where I was like well oh, I've got to stop doing this this can't go on like this and this this poor girl sitting there like who the oh, what have I done <laughs> immediate I could see immediate regret in her eyes and I was like you know it was like suddenly and a lot of people share this experience it was I don't believe in God but it was like a light was something shone upon me and I was I was almost like sober for a second and it was like the it was like watching the dials of the safe and it was like the last one just turned around and I could just see through into the other side and I just it was so clear I was like this is so obvious what I have to do it's so so obvious and I was just at the bar and I was like this is this is it I'm done she was like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm done. I'm going to stop. I'm, I've got to be sober. She was like, really? That's great. good for you. And so <laughs> and the barman gave me an espresso martini, which I'd forgotten that I ordered. And I was like, well, that's the last drink then, isn't it? So I just, I just necked it. And wow. Was like, I was like, 
thank you and good night. Wow. And that was your last drink? Yeah. And that's my girlfriend. We're still together. Oh, my God. What a bloody great story. Yeah. What a moment. I mean, I think, you know, like you just said there, lots of people will have had that experience where it's almost a surrender. It's not because of one particular circumstance or you pushed it too far that time. It's just this little nugget of clarity where you go, Mm -hmm. oh, I think I get it. And it can go for anything in life, not obviously sobriety and other things that are, you know, habitual detrimental behaviours or just thought patterns where you just go enough's enough enough's enough and yeah. um, and it's so brilliant that you stuck to it so then you went back to Josh newly sober to, to finish the song yeah yeah I went back there and um, we were in the studio and it got to about I don't know five o'clock which is when we usually have set up some shots and get the party going and yeah Ben and Ben and Josh were like handing the shots here you go come on and have a shot and then I was I was like actually you know I've, I've decided I'm just going to I'm just not going to drink. And everyone was like, oh, cool. And then just carried on. I was like, that was easy. I thought, <laughs> no I big thought dramatic moment, a... just okay. No. And then I remember, the, yeah, it came around again. Josh was like, you sure you don't want to drink? And I was like, no. And he was like, so what's going on? He's just going to, are you just stopping for a bit? And I was like, he's like taking a break. I was like, yeah, yeah. And he was like, that's amazing, man. Good for you. And he, was like, and he said to me, what we're doing in here is so much more important than what's going on out there. I was like, oh yeah, this is this is why we're here. We're not here to get. We're not here. To, I'm not known for getting drunk. I'm known for making music. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but part of, part of me was like, am I just in denial about this? Is this just this? Is this going to wear off? You know. But it it really didn't. I, and I, I I noticed everything. I noticed mean, my body changing and my yeah. It, it's the thoughts that I started to have. It's insane. You just have these thoughts that come into your mind and you're like, where on earth did that come from? These like things you, things suddenly become really grateful for or just simple lessons to yourself. It's such an incredible experience. It's the best experience I've ever had in my life getting sober. And I made it in a rock and roll band. That is just so... (laughs) I've had a pretty good life so far. It's so incredible to hear. It's, I'm so unbelievably chuffed for you and the fact that the proof's in the pudding with the album you know you can absolutely hear it and I'm interested to hear more about this sort of you know you obviously had from quite a young age this this pull towards something that was very different to what you'd been brought up with in a very religious household as you just mentioned were you drawn to sort of rock music and that rock and roll sort of vibe because you you actively wanted to rebel was that something that you sort of instinctively felt yeah, I, I think it was rock and roll was like a response to the way I was brought up, I think. You know, I felt incredibly controlled and mentally abused by my religious upbringing and the churches that I, I were in. And the mixture of the music being very square and there was never a place to kind of question anything. And if you did, it was like your bad news and it was very manipulative and some of the things we were taught you know really messed you messed me up anyway you know we taught about hell and the crucifixion and it was so gory and graphic and they introduced ideas of like thought crime you know saying you know there's 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 actions we're judged on them but Jesus comes along and he now says that he's up the game and now now if you think something 
you're punishable for your thoughts, which is just, that's just mental abuse. That's what I think. I think if you teach someone that they're accountable for their thoughts, that's just abuse. We have we have too many thoughts for that to even be yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. brought into the equation. It's we, we, We're not in control in that sense. Yeah, I did one of Sam Harris's meditation things of the day and he just said, you are not the thinker. And I was like, thank you. Relief, relief. <laughs> relief. And, you know, is that a conversation you can have with your family now? Yeah, yeah, we're all, we're all out of it. I... And your parents? Yeah, everyone. Wow. And we all just sit around and laugh about it in a really dark way. <laughs> well, that's good. Because <laughs> that's um, not always the case. That's really good. No. So I think, yeah, like when I found... Yeah, rock music, it was just so rebellious and it, it sounded... I almost think going to church and listening to that kind of music had been that environment. It was just revving up the engine, you know? And, yeah, being in a band and going on the road, it's, it's particularly at that age, it feels lawless, you know? Yeah. You know, maybe you've got this, um, this sort of rebellious streak that's always going to be around because you're almost rebelling against rock and roll now by doing a hit session instead of drinking tequila. I like it. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, fighting against the norm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because, you know, rebellion, you know, the word rebellion often has negative connotations, but I think it's a fantastic word because, well, like you just said, it is essentially just going against the grain, isn't it? You know, pushing boundaries, it can be in a really healthy, positive way. It's no bad thing. <clears throat> Something also I've I've witnessed um, seems to be part of your your new mindset and, and how you like to connect with life is wild water swimming. It's true. I love it. I was introduced into sea swimming years ago when I was still drinking and I very nearly got in. My friend of mine goes in nearly every day and he was like, yeah. I actually didn't believe that he did it because it was like December or January. And he's like, yeah, I'll go in all the time. He's like, let's just go in tomorrow. And I met him. I was at, outside my house for 8am and I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, that's mental. And then into sobriety, you know, there's so much time on your hands. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna chase him up on this one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in. The first time I went into the water, it was, yeah, I think it was February, which is probably the coldest it really gets. And I lost my voice. It was just so. It's like, it's like the devil comes out of you, you know. And I've got this other theory as well that like, yeah, when you when you do things like that, you can like scream and you can be like, oh my god, and you can just be express yourself in this way that you can't do in Sainsbury's you know yeah you get it out <laughs> yeah and it's the same same as being on a stage you know there's a I used to have this I used to get lost on is that me am I acting or who is that person on stage and I now realize no that is me that's just a side of me that requires that context in order for it to make sense you know you know what's um a massive shame is that it's not seen as a sort of everyday thing that that we have access to because you know unless you're in a, a rock band or you you live near very cold water when can we do that I mean like you know I see my kids do it they they'll run around out, outside of the school going absolutely crazy screaming shouting but it's so not the done thing for an adult and and like you I I love swimming in the sea I went um about a month ago or a few weeks ago now and it was fucking freezing but it was so incredible and me and my mate were quite literally like bellowing the cove into silence we were like screeching but it felt so amazing and yeah I I guess one of the problems we all have is we all get you know say we have felt anger because someone said something to us say we have felt sorrow because of whatever 
you know, any of those really strong emotions, we don't often have the space to exorcise them, get them out, like let them be free. We we trap it all inside and we'll be like so angry, but it's all inside. And yeah, having yeah. something like the stage or the sea, or I'm trying to think of any other examples. Maybe boxing is is a good one. Running. It's like sports. I think when you, when you go to, when you go, I, I don't yeah. like football, but when I imagine when you go, you know, when you go watch football, that that suddenly it's like, oh, now we can be nutters. Now we can. Scream we need more of that. Mental. Now men can hug each other. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but I think we need to sort of cultivate more opportunities in everyday life where yeah. we can, like, scream in the street if we need to, not like in a distressing way, but like let it all out or. You know, I, I, I will often from running, I will like sprint rather than jog at, at points to like, I've got to get something out of me. But it, it's not the dumb thing. It's a shame. Yeah. On, on that sober tour, I was doing some of the craziest shit on stage I've ever done. <laughs> like what? Like I just threw, I just was repeat. I started off by there's loads of feedback going. I was just sort of doing like karate kicks into the amps. Yeah. And acting like the amps were trying to fight me. <laughs> and this is just purely for my entertainment. And then I, Ben was looking at me like, "What? what's he doing? <laughs> and then I just took the bass off and I just, as hard as I could, just threw the whole thing into the amps and then just pushed, I just pushed all of the amps over. Wow. And it felt amazing. And it's, I was like, I can't, I can't do that anywhere else. Nope. <laughs> that's not, that's not okay. No. In normal life. But I was like, on stage, I was like, this is designed for me to do things like that. We need more stuff like that. I feel like, you know, kids have so many opportunities. Like, you know, if I take my kids to a ball pit, mm-hmm. oh, they're jumping, they're throwing stuff, they're pushing, you know, like bouncing off the walls. Like, you have that, you know, like, just freedom, isn't it? It's liberation. There's no containment of anything. And I, I feel like we're really, we're really missing out on that in life. Big time. Yeah, I want to go to one of those rooms where you can just smash plates. Have you heard of them? Yeah, yeah, we need to do that. Plate smashing, you know, anything that feels a bit out of the ordinary and, and I'm imagining like you karate chopping an amp, just very natural for that to just like weirdly unfurl. Yeah. Like the only other time I can really think that I had that huge release was giving birth to my kids where I, I just did not care. I was like howling and, and making these amazing noises and, you know, just proper freedom. But in everyday life, that's not the done thing. So I, you've, you've given me a mission. I'm going to look for more opportunities to do that in life. I think it's a really, it's a sensible idea. Especially to scream. Screaming's so good. It's amazing. What, what, like, it's difficult to even, even like now, I'm like, where would I go? And the only Ooh. place is probably the sea. Even then, I'll be a bit like, I have to be at six in the morning, make sure there's no one around. <laughs> yeah. But it's also a bit embarrassing. And also, <laughs> I think the first time you hear yourself scream, you feel embarrassed even like for yourself when it's just you on your own like this is really yeah. cringy but I, I think we need that release we do yeah the sea definitely did that it's the one Go, who, who knew going in freezing cold water was so good for you best. it's the best we've had Wim Hof on this very podcast and incredible you know hearing him talk about it you're like why am I not doing I mean I, I don't live by the sea unfortunately I'd love to one day but for the moment it's freezing showers which you know, isn't quite as atmospheric, but and I definitely can't scream because my neighbours would probably call the police. But it's you get that sensation. It's extreme and it's needed, and you know, it's we've got to. Did do he it. say that? Uh, am I making this up? Did he say that he found a sense of control when he was in there? Because that makes sense to me. It's I think the same with the screaming thing and the expressing yourself. It's like suddenly you're in control again. Yeah, and it, 
you're the one that's deciding to go in there. You know, you're you're inflicting it on yourself, and it's a sense of control that's and with with a side product of it being really really good for your mental health yeah. and your physical health. But that that's something that I've, I've thought about when you go in. You're like, yeah, f- it's finally some control over something. You know, yeah. There's very little we sort of can control. Very little. <laughs> it's like it's like this much we can actually have control over. I know, amazing. So look, it's it's sea swimming, it's it's karate chopping amps, it's not going to bars, it's having that gratitude you just talked about. It's it's an amazing thing, and I'm as I said, I'm I'm so thrilled for you. I'm so glad that you're um, carrying on with doing what you do, making magical music, but without booze. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And thank you for making such an amazing album, which has brought me a lot of joy over the last week. So thank you so much. And, um, and I'm so glad we got to talk today. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I can tell you one thing. Mike continues to make absolutely astounding music with his mate, Ben. You probably already guessed from that chat, but I'm completely obsessed with playing Royal Blood's new album, Typhoons. It is just bringing me so much joy listening to that album and my kids love it my husband loves it it's just the most brilliant album and also it's really good for running if you are also a keen runner and huge news they're going to be back out on tour in 2022 playing the big arenas including london's o2 i have to go i've got to be there Uh, If all that chat about immersing ourselves in freezing cold water intrigued you, do go back and listen to that episode with Wim Hof. Oh, he's such a legend. And you can get into cold showers by listening to that. And you can always let me know how you get on with it by saying hello on Instagram. We are at Happy Place Official. Love hearing from you there. Thanks again to the brilliant Mike, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you lot for listening. You are the best, simply the best. I'm off to find somewhere to let out a beautiful scream. I'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.